Welcome to episode 6 of Crime and Prejudice, a true crime podcast dedicated to exploring case files gone wrong involving racial and social injustice. The episodes walk you through the act, conviction, and exoneration of some of the most horrifying, controversial, and thought-provoking cases in America. As we head into the holiday season, I have decided to do my first two-episode part case, with the first episode covering the crime, arrest, and conviction, and the second episode turning everything you thought you knew about the case on your head. The second episode will be released on December 30th, and we will return to the normal Wednesday-by-weekly schedule, starting Season 2 of Crime and Prejudice, January 13th. Let me know if you enjoy this format of longer yet more in-depth investigations into these cases, as suggested by my fellow podcasters, and I will provide some more exciting updates at the start of Season 2, including some new exclusive content for subscribers. Follow Crime and Prejudice on Instagram to keep up on updates and news, and subscribe to the email list on crimeandprejudice.com. Since the last episode on the Central Park Five, there have been some exciting updates and feedback from you. First, the Crime and Prejudice podcast was submitted to Spotify Next Wave, a Spotify initiative to support university students with podcasts discussing relevant topics that are shaping the culture and future of podcasting. I'm excited to share that Crime and Prejudice was accepted into the Spotify initiative, giving me access to digital master classes and insights on the best podcast practicings, along with a Q&A session with top podcasters, such as Jack Kramer from the immensely popular podcast Daily Snacks. As Crime and Prejudice goes further along the Spotify Next Wave application process, I will provide any updates on the Instagram page, and I want to thank all of you for your support. I'm excited where we are all going in this criminal justice reform journey, appreciative to Spotify and reinforcing the importance of university voices in media. While 57% of my listeners use Apple Podcasts, I encourage perhaps non-iPhone users to use Spotify. You don't even need to have a paid Spotify subscription to listen. Finally, a couple shout-outs to listeners on Instagram. Thanks to Bree Harnack for the repost, giving Crime and Prejudice a shout-out, stating that, quote, you won't be disappointed, and I definitely hope that is the case. Additionally, thanks to S. Page on Instagram for the repost and props plugging Crime and Prejudice, stating that the narrator, quote, has a sick ASMR voice. I'm not sure if that's a compliment, S. Page, but I'll take it as such. I love interacting with you listeners, so keep the comments coming. I enjoy hearing from you. Finally, I want to give a quick shout-out to the couple of new listeners from Germany and Ireland. Welcome. I promise the U.S. is not as bad as the podcast makes it sound like. Finally, I am back in Philadelphia to work over winter break, so excuse the noise in the background for cases up through January. There is always life happening in Philly. Recently, a peculiar boxing match drew national attention when YouTube star Jake Paul KO'd former NBA player Nate Robinson in the second round of the fight. Both these individuals stepped out into the boxing arena for different reasons, but it was with mutual respect, despite all the smoke, with Nate Robinson stating, quote, I want to show the world that I'm a world-class athlete. I played college football, played in the NBA for 11 years, and I'm excited for this venture into the boxing ring. Jake Paul, on the other hand, had two previous fights, was excited to fight an actual athlete with his two former opponents being fellow YouTubers, noting that this would be his biggest accomplishment of his young boxing career. After the fight, Jake Paul called out more prominent and experienced fighters 
such as UFC fighters Dylan Danis and Conor McGregor, a very high card for a debuting NBA boxer, and time will tell where his career will take him. Although he might have stolen the spotlight, the fight was merely the undercard for the main event, Mike Tyson versus Roy Jones Jr., two legends in the boxing arena, with Mike Tyson having a career record of 15-6, with Roy Jones Jr. having a career record of 66 wins and 9 losses. Part of the post-fight intrigue was the juxtaposition between the new and upcoming celebrity boxers, whose careers may have been more social clout than skill, versus two nationally renowned boxers with established careers, many asking a reasonable question. Just how good is Jake Paul in the ring, given the unorthodox start to such a career? The actual road to a professional boxing career is exceedingly difficult, requiring lots of training to develop strength and exercise to keep your body in tremendous physical condition, with most of their professional life spent in the boxing gym. While fights are the most glamorous part of their careers, a boxer's career is mostly comprised of developing technique, managing diet, and meeting specific weight categories. This is in stark contrast with Nate Robinson who, despite the grueling workouts and training, only had four months to train for the fight with his training camp starting in August. Even Jake Paul, who started training nearly 11 months in advance in anticipation for a fight, this is not unusual for a professional boxer. Before turning professional, boxers compete and win at the amateur level starting at a young age at local gyms, participating at local and national tournaments. There are tournaments and competitions to compete in that can help showcase your amateur boxing skills, such as the Golden Gloves of America Tournament, which is a high-profile competition that could lead to international selection and could open you up for opportunities to be signed by professional boxing promoters that will arrange pro fights for you. After being signed by a promoter, you will be licensed by your state's athletic commission so you can participate in a professional bout. The commission ensures that you are an experienced boxer at the amateur level and are willing to pass neurological exams, submit blood work, and EKG to prove you are physically and mentally fit to fight. Even if you make it to the pro level, few will see the spotlight as seen by Mike Tyson, Roy Jones Jr., and even Nate Robinson and Jake Paul. In fact, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, a professional boxer earned an annual salary of $51,370. Some earned as little as $19,000. In fact, the prize money earned from boxing is rarely enough to support you until you retire, so many work a second job to support themselves. If you become a rare boxer who manages to hit the big time, like Floyd Mayweather, who received a mind-boggling $250 million for his fight with Manny Pacquiao, then all the hard work pays off big dividends. With all this in mind, it's up to you to decide the legitimacy of celebrity boxers such as Jake Paul in comparison with boxers such as Mike Tyson, but even Nate Robinson raked in more money than most professional boxers will see for their prize money, earning half a million in promotions and bonuses. After his release in 1961 from prison, 24-year-old Reuben Carter worked to turn his life around pursuing a career as a professional boxer leading to a short yet successful career before it was tragically cut short, when on June 17, 1966, he became involved in an infamous shooting at a bar in New Jersey, resulting in the death of the bartender and two customers, and his arrest led to two decades of time served in prison, in a case that would result in a movie like Saga, which resulted in a song written after him by Bob Dylan, 
1976, and Denzel Washington playing the role of Carter in the 1999 film Hurricane. The nickname for the up-and-coming boxer, the turned-around life and aggressive style of punching and power that earned him the movie title's nickname. This podcast discusses acts of a serious and sometimes distressing nature and may not be suitable for individuals under the age of 10. This podcast has trigger warnings related to violence and murder. It is recommended that you see your local crisis center for support or see the suggested phone numbers in this case's show notes. And now, on with the show. The Lafayette Bar and Grill in Patterson, New Jersey was a well-established tavern known as a quiet, watering hole on the border between Patterson's working Lithuanian and black neighborhoods. The local tavern had a television above the bar, a pool table in the middle of the checkerboard linoleum floor, and a kitchen that served up burgers and fries. On the walls above the bar, and surrounded by musical note decorations, was a famed portrait of previously assassinated but beloved President John F. Kennedy looking down at them. Beneath that sat a clock designed to look like a large pocket watch, and beneath that, three white rose whiskey bottles nestled amid a cluster of gins, vodkas, and other spirits. The recipe for a classic home bar familiar to the residents and even passerbys. On June 17, 1966, it was another routine night for bartender James Oliver at 2.30 a.m., with the 3 a.m. closing time of the bar and grill drawing near. Inside were two other men and one woman, all of whom were regulars at the tavern, with the two men nursing drinks perched on their bar stools and the lone woman sitting to their right, who had gotten off work earlier than usual from her waitressing job at the country club, and stopped by the bar on her way home to drop off a deposit for a trip to the Atlantic City later that summer. James Oliver counted the day's receipts when two men came through the front door from 18th Street. He immediately recognized trouble when they drew guns, one a 12-gauge shotgun and the other a 32 caliber, a German-made revolver, both of whom he noted were black. With an initial rush of panic, Oliver's last action of life was to hurl one empty beer bottle at the killers, which missed harmlessly smashing against a wall by the door. As he turned to run, hoping the bar would shield him past the ice cooler and toward the television, the gunman with the shotgun fired from about seven feet away, tearing into his lower back with a 12-gauge round, ripping a large hole and severing his spinal cord, killing him instantly. The gunman with the pistol turned his attention to 60-year-old Fred Noyuk, who was a machinist in town and stopped by for a drink before heading home. The gunman fired his 32 caliber pistol at him, with the bullet hitting Noyuk right above his right ear, searing through his brainstem killing him instantly as well. Seated a couple stools away, 42-year-old William Marins, also a machinist, was shot in the head 
by the man with the 32 caliber pistol, but got lucky with the 32 slug hitting him in the left temple and passing through his forehead near his right eye without killing him. He stumbled to the floor and played dead. The woman, Hazel Tannis, and the only one the gunman thought was left alive, was the last target, and she tried to run near the front door. No, she cried, as the man fired a blast into her right arm and shoulder, and as she slumped to the floor, the man with the pistol fired five shots at her from a close distance, hitting her four times in the chest, lower abdomen, and twice in the genital area. Miraculously, Tannis survived the initial shooting. One of the first men on the scene that took no part in the initial police dispatch was Patterson Police Detective John Lawless, who had been home after a long day and heard on his receiver that there had been a shooting at the Lafayette Bar and Grill. Lawless grabbed a couple guns, a 35 Magnum service revolver and a 9mm semi-automatic pistol, and raced to the bar stepping through the front door only a couple minutes later with no idea what he was heading into. The aftermath of the shooting was gruesome and sobering. All the lights in the bar were still on, and Noyuk's, who had been shot above a year, was slumped on the bar and almost appeared asleep with the cigarette still in hand and shot glass next to him with the cash sitting there as well, the payment for the drink. Spent shotgun shells were lying in a pool of blood dotted on the linoleum floor at Noyuk's feet. He had been well known in the area as a billiard player and was nicknamed Patterson Bob cedar go bob because he frequented the grill and bar often oliver the bartender was sprawled across the floor with 10 and five dollar bills scattered around him he had volunteered to tend the bar that night because his girlfriend who owned the lafayette bar and grill had been out working long hours marins who lived nearby would go on to lose his right eye and died seven years later due to unrelated complications tragically Tennis struggled to live another month before dying to an embolism and was found groaning in pain. This was the scene that the police dispatch walked into. Two men dead, one wounded and plain dead, and a woman whose shoulder and arm had been ripped to shreds with four other bullet wounds. The cash register had not been touched of the money, and $73 in Noyuk's wallet, $51 in Tannis's purse, and $30 next to Oliver's body had been left as well leaving police unsure of the motive. Patterson Deputy Police Chief Robert Mole was assigned to the case, surmising that the gunman probably had only needed maybe a minute or less to unleash the damage they had done on the four victims. In a weird twist adding to their already confusing mystery, the initial police dispatch overseen by Deputy Police Chief Robert Mole reported that the cash register was empty, the exact opposite reported by Lawless noted that the money found on Noyuk, Tannis, and Oliver was still untouched, which was confirmed by Lawless. It was a busy night for police because that same night, another killing occurred at another bar. Six hours earlier and five blocks away from the Lafayette Grill, a second bartender had been shot to death. Leroy Holloway, 48 at the time and owner of the Waltz Inn, was shot by a 12-gauge shotgun. This shooting had been opened and closed book for detectives, but highlighted a common theme at the time in Patterson and across the U.S. Holloway, the owner of the bar, was black, and his killer, Frank Conforti, who had sold the bar to him and apparently discreet about lax payments on the bar, was white. Patterson was perpetrated by racial lines and bartender James Oliver 
was noted to sometimes exclude or discourage patrons with a frequent visitor, John Artis, stating that, at the time, quote, the Lafayette black contingent just didn't go there. The bar was a border of sorts, with a line of streets and row homes being slowly integrated by black and Hispanic residents. While James Oliver's exclusion of residents may have sometimes been accidental rather than blatant acts of racism, Patterson police say that the grill usually had black customers. Bill Kanagi, the son of a business owner and occasional bartender at the Lafayette Bar Grill, though, disagreed, stating, quote, Every time I went in there, there were only whites. This racially divided and segregated pattern in the city of Patterson was not uncommon for the time, and other American cities which saw the same promise of racial equality underscored by fiery violence. Congress had passed legislation to expand civil rights and social programs to eradicate poverty from minority groups and people of color. But as described in previous episodes, such as the case of Maritabiba Dahl, there was still lots of backlash in the forms of riots in Watts, Detroit, and even Patterson itself. In Harlem, Malcolm X had been gunned down by three black men, one from Patterson, and Newark's infamous riots were still a year away, and even more ominously, reflecting the racial tensions that were boiling over. The assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., two years down the road. With the previous shootings in color relations at the time, police immediately suspected the shootings of whites at the Lafayette Grill to be an act of revenge for the killings at the Waltz Inn, especially for the fact that Tennis was able to describe her attackers as black to police. The police were informed by witnesses that the killers had escaped in the white sedan with blue and gold license plates, and they immediately radioed Patterson police cruisers be on the lookout, and a police cruiser heading toward Lafayette Grill spotted a white car with a New York license plate speeding along 12th Avenue towards Route 4. Police started following the white sedan, and Sergeant Theodore Captor approached the vehicle. Captor immediately recognized Reuben Carter wearing black pants, a red vest, and a white sport coat. He sported a shaved head and a bushy goatee, so he was one of the most recognizable people in town, aside from the fact that he was a celebrity. Two other men were in the car with him, John Royster and John Artis. He let them drive away, but when he returned to the scene was told by witnesses that the getaway car also had a distinctive butterfly design for the rear lights. Captor realized that it fit Carter's car, and a police convoy was sent out around 3 a.m., and Artis and Carter were escorted back to the bar when it was found 10 blocks away, but this time John Royster was no longer there. Back at the bar, Patricia Graham Valentine, a waitress in town who lived one floor above the Lafayette Grill, told police that the car did indeed match the one she had seen driving away, stating that, quote, it was white, specifically with a geometric design, a sort of butterfly design in the back of the car, stating specifically as well that it had a New York license plate. Another witness, Alfred Bello, who had been walking down the street to buy cigarettes, also heard the gunshots and saw the two black men driving away in the white sedan. With these two eyewitnesses of two black men in a white car, police took in Carter and Artis to headquarters for questioning, this time by Lieutenant DeSimone. Whether you are up in the clouds or going away underground, it is easy for you to take music wherever you go. With Spotify Premium, you can save your favorite songs to your phone and listen offline. That means you can play anywhere, anytime without using any data. And right now, you can try premium free for 30 days. Ready to make a move? 
Tap the banner to learn more in the Spotify app. Robin Carter was born in 1937 to a family of nine children in Clifton, New Jersey. He had a troubled upbringing and at the age of 11, had been sentenced to the juvenile system for assault and stabbing a man, although he had claimed the man had tried to sexually assault him. After six years in the juvenile prison, he escaped and joined the United States Army where he took up boxing but was discharged and returned home where he was convicted of two more muggings and sent to prison again. After being released in September of 1961, he started going through the tedious task of becoming a professional boxer, accomplishing middleweight status at 155 to 160 pounds, though shorter than the average height of 5'8". Despite the height and reach disadvantage, he gained popularity for his aggressive style, often leading to many early round knockouts and defeated a number of middleweight contenders in Florento Fernandez, Holly Mims, Gomio Brennan, and George Benton, earning the honor of a top 10 middleweight contender in July of 1963 by the magazine The Ring, ranking him at fifth. On December 20th of that year, he shocked the world by flooring the past and future world champion Emil Griffith twice in the first round and winning him a technical knockout. He moved to number three in the rankings and went on to fight for the 15th round middleweight championship match in Philadelphia, where he lost, but despite this, he had made it in the boxing world. At the time of the arrest, he had been past his prime in boxing but was still considered a celebrity to the residents of Patterson. John Artis was Carter's lifelong friend who also had a mild career in athletics as well. His family settled in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, but back in the 1950s, the street he lived on Effingham Street was a fence of segregation with blacks living on the west side and whites to the east. Artists remembered the only white kid he knew was a son of a woman who employed his mother. At the age of eight, John headed with his family to New Jersey. He excelled in choir and participated in Boy Scouts, but it was his athletics that he honed in on. At Pedersen Central High, he played in numerous sports including basketball, football, and track. Despite the segregation at the time, his mentor, black man who had gone to the Olympics, tried to reinforce the message that there was a better world than the race or the town they were in, often inviting the track boys to his home, grilling them steaks. Artis was an honor student and won a four-year track scholarship to Adams State College in Colorado, along with one of his best friends who was going to play football. Only a month before graduation, however, Artis's mother died of kidney disease. Artis, the only child in the family, was devastated recalling that it took a while before him and his father were able to regroup. Deciding to put off college and got a job as a truck driver for a local food delivery. He played semi-pro football for the Patterson Panthers and enjoyed going to clubs to show off his good dancing skills that earned him the nickname Dancing Boy. In the months that led up to the crime, artists' prospects of going back to college again were being reunited, especially for the fact that the draft in the army was becoming more likely and he wouldn't have to go as a student. While Carter was well known in Patterson as a boxer, he had also gained a reputation of rightly speaking out against the climate of race relations. He attended the iconic civil rights speech in Washington, D.C., listening to the famous I Have a Dream speech, but he had disagreed with the notions of nonviolence. In a particularly heated moment that would go down the heads of Patterson police, Carter told a friend, quote, let's get guns to go up there and get us some of those police. Like most young black men at the time, they were thrown into a difficult culture to start their lives, 
one that often pitted themselves against authority institutions such as police, so police were very familiar with Carter at the time of the arrest. Police took Carter's car into the Patterson police quarters, and by 4 a.m., they had uncovered an unused 32 caliber cartridge and an unused 12-gauge shotgun shell in the trunk. Carter and Artis were interrogated by several hours by Lieutenant Vincent and Simone, but both adamantly denied any involvement. They claimed that they had gone to the club night spa and that Artis needed a ride home, so Carter and Artis left the club together, with Carter giving him the keys to his white Dodge. Dee Simone arranged for them to take a polygraph, but the first test they both passed. In a written report, however, the examiner said about Artis, he quote, had no knowledge but had suspicions as to who was responsible. The same polygraph expert also stated in Carter's report that while Carter did not participate in the killings, he quote, had knowledge as to who was responsible. A second test was given to the two men, after which this time they failed. After 17 hours of interrogation, they were released. Carter and Artis voluntarily appeared before a grand jury, which found that, that there was no case to answer. However, the person in Bellow became even more precarious after he admitted that he had been trying to rob a nearby warehouse with his partner, Arthur Bradley, when he had went for cigarettes and saw the gunman in getaway car. Bellow now changed his story by telling police that the man with the shotgun was definitely Carter. Additionally, Kyle Deal, a reporter of the Herald News of Passaic and Clifton, helped cover the trial informed the police that the movement of Carter's car that night of the shooting indicated suspicious patterns of driving, of which he said, quote, if you study this evidence, it just makes sense. Police released the two men on June 17th, but ended up deciding that the two unspent 32 caliber cartridge and 12-gauge shotgun shell, eyewitness confirmation matching the car, and failed polygraphs, that they had enough evidence for a case and arrested the duo four months later. A third suspect was mixed into the fray, Eddie Rawls, who was a friend of Carter's and the stepson of Leroy Holloway, the black man who had been killed at the Waltz Inn. Him and two friends had showed up to the Patterson police station hours after his stepfather's death, demanding to know what actions police were going to take, pouring out with their understood outrage of the death. He also told police that if they did not take proactive action to solve the murder, he would handle it himself before returning to work at the night spot on the morning of June 17th, the same club that Carter and Artis had been at. Rawls was also given a polygraph by police, with the polygraph expert writing in the report that Rawls' tests had come back inconclusive. The joint trial for Carter and Artis began early in April of 1967, overseen by Judge Samuel A. Lerner in the Pasadena County Superior Court. Prosecution comprised of Pasadena County Assistant Prosecutor Vincent Newhall Jr., who was seeking the death penalty for both men. Carter was represented by defense attorney Raymond A. Brown, while Artis was represented by Arnold M. Stein. The jury was all white. Marins was the first to testify for the prosecution, but was unable to identify Carter or Artis since the shooting had happened so quickly. In fact, he was unable to provide much to any details. For identification, prosecution relied heavily on Bellow and Bradley. The duo had been trying to rob the warehouse for cigarettes. In an awkward testimony that indicted themselves for burglary, they testified that they had been near the Lafayette Grill for the purpose of robbing the warehouse. 
Bello had been acting as a lookout while Bradley entered the house to steal things. He went down the block to pick up cigarettes, and while he was walking past the Lafayette Grill, he saw two black men walking towards him, one with a shotgun and one with a pistol, after which Bello sprinted away from them into the alleyway. He testified about the white Dodge as it passed by, noting the New York license plate. Bella went into the bar and with a peculiar moment of morbid lack of empathy, walked past the dead bodies and injured individuals and went to the register to call the police. In reality, he just grabbed the money out of the register and left. He reconnected with Bradley, who had also headed down the block after hearing the gunshots. Bella identified Carter and Artis in front of the jury, and Bradley identified Carter, but was not able to identify Artis. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. Not only is it free, there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Cardis and Artis each testified on their own behalf, maintaining that they had not been involved in the shooting in any way. They both testified that they had been at the night spot on the night of the shooting, and that they had given two women a ride home before returning to the night spot around 2.30. Carter then described how he had left Artis and Royster to grab more money for drinking. Royster also testified to the grand jury corroborating the story. Both Carter and Artis provide alibi witnesses who placed the duo at the club and the two women. Anna Mapes and her daughter Catherine McGuire corroborated Carter's story. The prosecution, during cross-examination, however, called into question whether it might be the previous night that Carter had driven the women home, not the night of the shooting, putting into doubt their most solid alibi witness. Defense pointed out that neither the 32 caliber cartridge nor 12-gauge shotgun shell matched the ones retrieved from the victim. The 32 round found at the scene was brass, while the ones found in the car were copper. The shotgun shell found at the scene was an older model, with a different wad and color than the one found on the vehicle. The prosecution, however, countered this argument, pointing out the fact that the expended rounds retrieved at the scene had a mixture of shotgun shells and cartridges. So the fact that the two rounds didn't match were meaningless. What did matter was the same caliber was used in the shootings. For listeners who do not know, caliber refers to the diameter of a rifle or handgun bore, which is typically listed as the same caliber of the bullet. Additionally, prosecutors brought forth Eddie Rawls, the stepson of Leroy Holloway, who testified that at the Night Spot Tavern, that he had been working that night, Carter had started to talk about the guns he had stolen earlier that year, and that he was suddenly interested in finding where he had last placed him, which he had forgotten. Eddie thought this was odd. Additionally, talks that night between blacks had revolved around a possible riot or some sort of trouble, even though nothing ultimately transpired that took the form of an actual riot. After hearing both sides of the case, the all-white jury convicted both men of first-degree murder with their recommendation of mercy, which meant they avoided the death sentences. Judge Sam Lerner, imposed two consecutive and one concurrent life sentences on Carter and the three concurrent life sentences on Artis, finally bringing an end to the terrible and confusing 
race intertwined incident that fateful night of June 16, 1966.